Good morning, I'm Patrick Connor. Our reading this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, who I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I may have a harvest among you, just as I had among the Gentiles. I am obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of that gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteousness will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. So as you know, if you've uh, been listening for a while, we're in a series that takes us through the entire New Testament. We began this series near the first of the year, and it will take us all the way up through the first Sunday of Advent. In order to do such a series, you also are aware of the fact that we can't spend a lot of time in each book or epistle. And recently, we galloped through the book of Acts, and at the end of the book of Acts, you have a description of what is about to happen to Paul not the details. What you have is a description that Paul finally made it to Rome. All the other epistles that Paul writes are written to churches that he established, whether it's Philippians or Ephesians or Thessalonians or Corinthians. He'd been there. He knew the people. And he was writing back to them. This epistle, the epistle to the Romans, is entirely different. He'd never met them. He'd never been there. He didn't establish the church. Actually, we have no idea who established the church. It's our historical speculation that what happened is on the day of Pentecost, when the church exploded on the scene of human history, there were people who heard the message and carried it to Rome. And those people established a group of Christ followers. It's not as though Paul is completely unaware of the church in Rome. He'd heard stories. They'd heard stories about him, but he didn't know them. And so now he writes to them, probably from Corinth, and certainly near the end of his missionary time in the Roman Empire. 
There's one other characteristic about the epistles of Paul that are different than the epistle to the Romans. Most of the epistles of Paul are written to a church for a particular reason. Sometimes they're written because there was a significant controversy. And Paul was addressing the issues that were right at the top of their community list. And thus, in the context of community, Paul develops theology. He develops a doctrine of God for these early Christians. And with most of the epistles, it's shaped by circumstances. But when we get to the book of Romans, we feel like we've entered a different territory. No longer is Paul addressing a particular concern, although you may argue that. Paul is, in effect, maybe we could put it this way, wrapping it all up. Paul's an author who never wrote a book. He just wrote epistles. And near the end, he's basically bringing it all together in a whole. That's why people often say that Romans is the only so-called systematic theology that Paul wrote. I don't think you would have recognized it as that, but that's what we call it, or some do. So who established the church at Rome? Jesus Christ. And who is a, a servant of Jesus Christ that's on his way to Rome? A legendary apostle? The apostle Paul. So he begins by addressing the Romans who are in, the Christians who are in Rome. And he says, there's several things I want to tell you about the gospel. But one of the first things he tells them about the gospel is this. The good news concerning Jesus Christ was not an afterthought by God. In other words, in the historical context of human history, God didn't get to the place that he said, this is a mess. It didn't work out according to the Old Testament laws and prophets. I guess I need to send Jesus in there to fix it. Now, of course, Jesus came in and fixed it all right. But Paul says, no, that's not quite the way it is. Here's the way it is. From the very beginning, God designed this. It was a plan long ago. It wasn't an afterthought. As a matter of fact, he refers in this epistle at the beginning when he speaks of the gospel not being an afterthought by God. He refers to a passage in 2 Samuel. When David, who wished to build a temple, God came to him and said to him, let me tell you something, David. When your days are over, and you rest with your fathers. In other words, David, when you die, I will raise up your offspring, a king. A king whose kingdom will be eternal. 
Paul harkens back to the Old Testament routinely. He doesn't do like we would do nowadays when we're writing a book, put, put a footnote at the end of this. This refers to such and such verse. He just assumes people understand what he's talking about. And he's talking about that passage in 2 Samuel where God predicts that out of the line of David will come an eternal kingdom. He says, this is the promise of that eternal kingdom, the Son of God. So first, what is the gospel all about? It's the good news that was always planned in advance by God. Second, what is the gospel all about? He makes it clear at the very outset. The gospel is the good news for the whole world. The gospel, the way he describes that, is the good news for both Jews and Gentiles. That encompasses the whole world. It's good news for everyone. The next question we might ask of the book of Romans and Paul's theology in general why is it good news? You might say to yourself, well, that's an obvious question, but let's ask it anyway, as if we were the first readers. Why is it good news that Jesus came? Now, in order to answer that question, I'm going to skip ahead to the last part of chapter one. Here's the reason it's good news. It's good news because the wrath of God has been, is, and will be poured out upon humanity. It's good news because all of us are under the weight and the burden and the curse of sin. It's good news because Jesus came to be salvation for all humanity who uniformly are under the weight and the burden of sin. That's why it's good news. As a matter of fact, sometimes we think of the wrath of God as a white-haired, vengeful dictator in the heavens, slapping down humans for doing the wrong thing. I don't want to go too far to suggest that the wrath of God is never personal, because it is. We see it in the Old Testament. We see the anger of God. But I do want to point out something. In this particular passage, Romans chapter 1, Paul speaks about a different kind of wrath. Because in the Scripture, the wrath of God can be viewed in two ways, simultaneously and at different times. The first view of the wrath of God, which really is true, is that God is angry about sin and punishes sin in a personal way. But there's something else to the wrath of God. And this is what Paul bears out in Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is the consequence of sin. The wrath of God is nature playing itself out upon people who are living in sin. The wrath of God, to put it another way, as Paul says, is God turning you loose. God leaving you alone. Let me remind you, all of you who are parents, 
and all adults, you understand perfectly well that it is your responsibility to lay down structures around children. What are the structures for? So that you can be angry with them when they break the rules? Maybe sometimes you do get angry, and I remember as a parent getting angry in, in ways that I look back on now and think, why? Why did, I, why did I get angry? The structure that I placed for my children was the purpose, one purpose, to protect them and to help them grow up in safety. So imagine God as the heavenly father that he's often referred to in the scripture as laying out a paradigm for how we ought to live. And then we as human beings routinely like rebellious children saying, I don't want it. I want to do my own thing. I want to pursue my stuff. And eventually, eventually God says, You're adults. Have it your way. That's what Romans chapter 1 reveals for us about the wrath of God. God turned them over to their foolish ways. God turned them over to futile thinking. God turned them over and let them be who they wanted to be. The result, which is the wrath of God, is this. When God turns you over to your sin, you become enslaved. You become enslaved by the sin that seemed so sweet. You become enslaved by the sin that you thought you wanted. And before long, that sin is your master. That's why this is incredibly good news. All of you, he says, who are enslaved by sin have been given freedom in this good news through Jesus Christ. There is an open door of freedom. You no longer have to be slaves to sin. You can be free in Christ. That comes through repeatedly in Paul's epistles. The other part of the good news is that it is for Jews and for Gentiles. Paul in Romans 1, following verse 18, describes all kinds of sinful living. And if you were the first readers of the epistle, you would know exactly who he was talking about. He was talking about the Gentiles. He was talking about people who did not live according to any laws of God. And had you been a righteous one, you might have been the person who sits in the chair when condemnation is declared and shouts, Amen, preach it, brother. Those wicked people If the readers of the 
epistle to the Romans are following along and in their mind they're saying that, that's right, God's wrath is going to be poured out on those Gentiles who are wicked. They got a big wake-up call coming in just a few verses because Paul turns it right around and says, look in the mirror. It's you. It's not just the Gentiles. It's you who call yourselves the righteous ones. You too have the problem with sin. The wrath of God is being poured out even on you. And that's why this is good news. Because you and them can be delivered from judgment. Now, you know, the way I described this, it didn't sound real delightful, did it? It didn't sound like big, grand good news to begin with. The, the reason it didn't is because the good news is the good news only when you understand the bad news. If there's nothing to be solved why do I need to reveal the good news? If everything's okay, why do I need to say there's good news? Everything is not okay. Humanity is under the weight and the slavery of sin. And here's the good news. It doesn't need to be that way. And it comes to you from where? It comes to you from the righteousness of God. Where does the righteousness of God come from? It comes from God. But you might say to yourself, if you're one of the first readers of the epistle to the Romans, but isn't that the God who actually is bringing wrath? Why is it good news? The righteous God, who is a wrathful God. That's not good news to me, Paul. Paul says, let me tell you one more part of the story that's incredible, that turns it all upside down. Yes, the wrath of God is being poured out on unrighteousness. And yes, God's righteousness, not yours, not your good works, not your ability, God's righteousness is being poured out on you. If by faith you step into the good news, now the God who you once feared that God becomes your righteousness. How? When you become more righteous? When you work harder? When you get all your ducks in a row, so to speak? When you can look back on your checklist and say, now I got it, now I'm righteous? No, not then. Not then at all. It comes to you when you realize that the checklist is too long for you to ever even address. And it goes on and on and on. And the only thing the checklist can do is oppress you. But God gives his righteousness to you completely by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel I'm preaching, says Paul. And that is really good news. 
actually, it's the most transformative news in the history of the world. There was never any good news like this before. Gods were capricious, mean-spirited, all about judgment and wrath and constantly feared, never loved. Paul says this God is offering you his own righteousness. Who's the righteousness of God for? It's for the legalistic, guilt-ridden seekers of righteousness. It's for all those people who are doing their best to be good. And knowing right in the middle of all their efforts, that they're falling short. That's who the righteousness of God is for. It is for people like Martin Luther, who thought that the only way he could ever be right with God was to devote himself to God through being a monk. And he gave himself to perfection as close as he could to attain it. He was rigorous with his own self-righteousness. He said on one occasion, I was a good monk. If ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, it was I. (laughs) He made up a word. I love it. Because when I typed that in, the spell check didn't let me keep going, you know. I had to fix it. If ever a monk could get to heaven by monkery, that was me, said Luther. I did it all. It's the greatest transformative message in history. It changed the world through Martin Luther and others. You may know of an Episcopal priest who found himself roughly in the same position, doing his best to achieve righteousness. But while he tried to achieve righteousness, he was not only tormented by his sin, but he was also despairing of the presence of God, pursuing God with everything he had and feeling only God's absence. That Anglican priest was named John Wesley. And on one occasion at a place called Aldersgate, he went to hear a sermon, a lecture, about the book of Romans. And the opening of that lecture was Luther's preface to the book of Romans. And John Wesley said in that moment, He actually was very precise, Wesley was. He said at 9.15. He said, in that moment, I felt my heart strangely warmed. 
I felt I did. Trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. The message of the book of Romans, and of course there's more than one message in it, that message is historically transformative. It's for those who are legalistic and guilt-ridden because they're trying to achieve righteousness. But you know who else it's for? It's for the disillusioned idealists. The ones who think that somehow there's a way for not only them individually, but there's a way for their world to be transformed into goodness through social reform, through changes that are systematic and well-ordered. A man who was born at the end of the 19th century and became famous in the 20th century was a person who had studied theology in Europe under the tutelage of people who did their best to paint a picture of the possibility of a utopic society. But as a part of that message of that utopic society that would come into be by the change of social conditions, as a part of all that, Karl Barth, while writing his own theology, said he could literally hear the guns of World War I. The most horrific war humanity had ever yet seen. The most horrific atrocities of human beings against human beings. And he looked around and he became overwhelmed by disillusionment. The theology that he thought would lead to a utopia was the theology that was right alongside horrific, catastrophic human carnage. What happened to Karl Barth? He read the book of Romans. It's not as though he hadn't read it before. But when he read it, he realized the true goodness did not come from grand ideology, but from Jesus Christ and Christ alone. One theologian, actually a Roman Catholic theologian, said that when Karl Barth came to this realization, it was like a bomb went off using wartime images, like a bomb went off in a theologian's playground. Is that good? Theologian's playground. Just kind of messing around with righteousness. Just kind of figuring out how it's all supposed to be. And right in the middle of it, boom! 
a bomb goes off and the bomb says, you can't fix anything. The righteousness of God comes from Jesus Christ. When grand dreams crash onto the rocks of reality, those who are disillusioned with their idealism, they're prime candidates for this message. Who else is it for? It's for the perfectionists. The perfectionist who believes that he or she can get it right. The person who's exhausted by the pursuit of doing it and being perfectly right. This good news is for them. It's also for those who are overcome by self-loathing a strange sort of perverted pride. Thinking they're never good enough. Thinking that somehow they're not really made in the image of God. The good news is for them too. Those who are drowning in self-hatred The good news is for those who are desperately seeking happiness. Happiness through money because I can just buy it. Through fame because people will act like I'm a God. Through power because I can control everybody else in all my circumstances. Through pleasure because it dulls the pain. It's for those people as well the good news of Jesus Christ. It's also for those people who in an almost singular fashion see God as a harsh judge and can never get past it. A few weeks ago, looking out to see if there's anybody in my audience who was there. I was given the opportunity, as I do once or twice a year, to speak to uh, the high school students. And um, I decided I would just go real topical. And the title of my talk is Five Things I Wish I Knew When I Was in High School. I'll tell you what the number one thing was. I wish I knew that God really loved me. Now, I'm not blaming anybody for my lack of understanding of that. My parents communicated it to me. My Sunday school teachers communicated it to me. I know a lot of preachers in my background didn't do a very good job of communicating that to me. But I'm not blaming them because it was there. I just didn't get it. I guess I thought it was impossible. How could God really love me? 
I know me too well. I really believe that I thought that God was a harsh judge, a cosmic policeman, lurking around a bush waiting to give me a ticket and slap me. I'm reminded of uh, a quote from a Christian philosopher named Simone Weil. She said, all conceptions of God which are incompatible with pure charity are false. All conceptions of God that are incompatible with pure charity are false. That doesn't mean that the wrath of God doesn't exist or the discipline of God doesn't exist. It means that it's all governed by the love of God. The last thing I want to say about who it's for, it's for those who have experienced the grace of God. Those who have experienced the grace of God but need a reminder You need to hear it again and believe it again. It's possible that you never really got it the first time. It's possible that you went through the motions when you heard the, heard the words and you sort of accepted it, but it didn't become deeply a part of you. It's possible that there was a time. There was a time when you really accepted it. But now, because of your maturity, you're kind of beyond it. Don't really need it anymore. I got this thing now. I got saved. I understand grace. Now it's up to me. There are people like that. You may be, if you take a spiritual inventory, one of those people. Here's what I want to do. I want to pray for all of us, assuming that some of us need to be reminded of the grace of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. So will you pray with me? Lord, I, I pray this morning um, for that individual or individuals who either are here or watching our service online, for those individuals who have never really experienced the full grace of God. They may have heard the language they may have even given mental assent to it, may have gone through the motions, but not truly experienced it. I pray for those people, Lord, 
that like a mighty wave from the ocean, you will wash over them. You will help them to understand and experience grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, for those people who, as they hear this description, are reminded of the fact that they once did experience it. They remember the wave. They may even tell people about the wave. But for whatever reason, Lord, almost imperceptibly, they've, they've moved into Christian legalism. And they're no longer immersed in grace. They're swimming in a sea that they weren't prepared to swim in, a sea of legalism and duty. Maybe, maybe they're on the shore now, and they're walking. Bring in the wave again, Lord, and wash them out to the sea of your grace. And I pray, Lord, for all of us, no matter where we are, that you will awaken us or reawaken us to the only truly good news in the universe, that God loves us and invites us to step into a relationship with him based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.